returning to the uh, podium here, Dr. Alan Fleischer is a professor in the Department of Dermatology at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and co-director of the Center for Dermatology Research. He is also executive director of dermatology at MERS Pharmaceuticals. Please help me in welcoming back Dr. Fleischer. Thanks, Travis. Really appreciate it. Well, my goal today is not necessarily to make you an expert on fungal infections, but to give you a little flavor because People spend their life studying fungus. Those people are not me. Uh, I'm just a student of fungus over the years. And I trained at a different time in dermatology, a time at which fungus was very important. We used to speciate uh, fungi in our own lab. We'd grow things on mycocele and samborodes. They'd get fuzzy wuzzies. We'd turn them over tease them out, look at the microconidia under the microscope with lactophenocotton blue. The kinds of things I'm describing probably don't reflect what you do in your office today. Um, uh, lots of things have made that happen, such as the advent of CLIA, uh, which is the laboratory destruction ru uh, uh, ruling of uh, the federal government. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, fungal infections remain important. I'm not going to limit myself necessarily just to, you know, fungus infections of the right fingernail. We're going to think about this a little bit more broadly. And when I think about the universe of fungal infections, um, there are about 70,000 ways of dividing them. Let me just give you mine. I'm not saying that's the right one. The superficial fungal infections, the dermatophytes, um, subcutaneous mycoses, dimorphic systemic mycoses, and then opportunistic systemic mycoses. Um, we're going to focus um, uh, more on the superficial fungal infections than the dermatophytes. I'm going to just talk to you in passing about some of these fun ones, histo and you know similar, but um, you don't see those every day says the importance of diagnosis, you're right, it does appear to be some sort of fungus. So even, even the pharmacist can figure that out. Okay, when I say superficial fungal infections, um, you know, there are four patterns of these superficial fungal infections. And just sort of the way I look at it, okay, if any of you are mycologists in a former life, just, just be quiet. Um, but these are the fungi that do not have the ability to invade skin, hair, or nails. They do not have the ability to invade live, live human tissue. In essence, they sit on the surface of the skin, well, or on the surface of some other uh, 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 skin-like appendage, such as hair. So we have pityriasis versicolor. If you want to call it tinea versicolor incorrectly, go right ahead. We've got Tinea nigra. I'm sorry, it's called tinea nigra, even though it's not a tinea, um, and that's unbelievably rare. Have any of you seen tinea nigra? Not too common. I mean, I've seen a couple in my career. White piedra and black piedra. Just saw a great kiddo with piedra just a few weeks ago. I took pictures because I see it once every five or ten years. These are fungi that live on the surface but do not invade. Okay, and so we know the pattern of pityriasis versicolor, dark spots on light skin, light spots on dark skin. It may be itchy, but typically it's more of a cosmetic phenomenon. 
um, more pityriasis versicolor. Um, and these are caused by the Malassezia species. We've just had our first year residents start in dermatology in July. I've asked all three of our new first year residents, what are the species that cause um, uh, that cause uh, pityriasis versicolor. Everyone reads it, uh, has, gets it wrong because they read it in their 25-year-old textbook and their 25-year-old textbook is wrong. Things change in mycology. So there are 10 species of Malassezia. Um, okay, so most important is Malassezia furfur, which is number two in importance. M. globosa is number one. Uh, but we've also got Sympoidalis and a few other rare species. Okay, so there are a lot of species, and they all live on the surface of the skin. And then we have the pattern of Tinea nigra. It can also be Tinea plantaris, um, uh, and it, in, uh, Nigra plantaris. And it, it um, uh, is typically on the palms or soles, it's got this dark appearance and it just kind of scrapes away. Um, and it responds really easily to treatment. This is the same kind of phenomenon. And then we have our piedras, the black piedra and white piedra. This is white piedra. These, it takes extra special work because, you know, some of these folks will be sent to you by the school nurse who says, this person has um, has lice that doesn't get better with 17 tries at NICS or RID treatment. And the reason they don't get better is because it's a misdiagnosis. Um, uh, if you look at it from a distance, it looks a lot like lice, but these little tiny things are stuck on. And if you carefully look, and my dermatoscope always comes in handy, you know, you've noticed it doesn't have the typical uh, lice shape, and as well, there are hair casts, which are part of just um, lots of diseases, including seborrheic dermatitis, and it's not that. They kind of slide up and down. These um, are little cute spots, and you have to look at them very carefully, but um, it's relatively uncommon in the United States to have the piedras. So that winds up our superficial fungal infections and, oh, the organisms that cause it. Um, uh, black piedra horti and white, all of the trichosporin species. Um, uh, when I trained, it was trichosporin bajelli, but now we have all these other six species. Okay, and then we come to the cutaneous mycoses. What are the cutaneous mycoses? Okay, so we have the dermatophytosis of the skin, hair, and nails. Um, that is, the dermatophyte or tinea fungal organisms, and they have the ability to invade skin, hair, and nails, but not live human tissue. And then we have candidiasis of the skin, mucous membranes, and nails. And then the so-called dermatomycoses. Now, some, for some of you, this is new terminology. It doesn't have to be. And those are other organisms that invade skin, hair, and nails, but are not members of dermatophyte or candidiasis groups. So, okay, we all recognize the tinnias, um, scaling, periphery, central clearing, redness, um, you know, um, standard looks. Oftentimes, um, feet are the most involved. Um, it's estimated by the time you get to be my age, which is really old, according to my daughter, Rebecca, that 50% of guys have tinea pedis. About 25% of women my age have tinea pedis, although they're all insulted when you tell them that. Um, uh, this is a kiddo that most probably got involved with a new puppy. Um, you know, new puppies come with lots of joy, 
Um, uh, usually I like to see these kids that come from urban areas in, in my community because they're very interested in, in making sure the puppy gets cured. Probably a dozen times in my career, I've seen these kids come in with these kinds of infections from rural North Carolina, and they've already shot the dog. Unbelievable. So, uh, well, anyway, I couldn't make that one up. Uh, and um, uh, these infections can be florid, occupying a lot of body surface area, or just between the fourth and fifth interdigital web space. So. Um, you know, lots of different looks. When I trained in dermatology, the rule was there are two reasons to perform a potassium hydroxide prep. Number one, if you think it's a fungus. Number two, if you think it's not a fungus. Although, I'll tell you, I've made plenty of mistakes. You know, person comes in with this rashy thing, you begin treating with a super potent topical steroid, they come in two weeks later, it's gotten so much worse, and you go, aha, <laughs> I figured it out. I did the diagnostic test, a super potent steroid. Um, lots of organisms, although, um, and there's worldwide differences in, in prevalence, but um, uh, trichophenum rubrum is number one of importance in the United States. T. rubrum is by far the leading organism that grows in the skin for tinea pedis, as well as the leading uh, dermatophyte in every other place except the hair. So, Tinea corporis organisms include, whoops, there we go, um, lots of them, um, but T. rubrum is number one. In fact, when you see it on the body, you need to think about looking on the feet because sometimes they have concomitant infections there. Same is true in the groin. Tinea capitis organisms, though, are different, and um, uh, we pick up T. tonsurans, trichophenum tonsurans, is the single most important organism, but there are others that are out there. Um, so in general, it's T. rubrum, although in scalp, T. tonsurans, but quite honestly, most people don't talk about these fungal species anymore. I try to avoid using terms like ringworm. I have had some of my patients worry that worms were crawling out of their body. Um, that kind of paranoia uh, may not really be necessary. Um, I try to talk about fungus or yeast-like things that grow on the skin, and they seem to be very reassured as opposed to imagining creatures coming out like the movie Aliens. Okay, tinea unguum is one of the most common patterns we see. Uh, one of my star events of my career was using the word unguum in a Scrabble game. I got rid of... <laughs> Three useless U's. It wasn't a high-scoring word, but it was a fantastic word for getting rid of three U's. And that's tinea of the, uh, of the nail, which is not the same as anicomycosis. People make that mistake all the time. So anicomycosis is an infection of any fungal organism that gets into the nail. Tinea unguum is just the tinea organisms, like the most common is T. rubrum. Um, they're not the same, because you can have candidal infections, you can have lots of other kinds of fun infections. And tinea unguum, you know, we, we know what it looks like. I've got it on my left fifth toe. Uh, so, T. rubrum's the most common, but lots of things have been reported. Um, and outside of the United States, the distribution is a little bit different than in the United States. 
Then we have candidiasis of the nails. Again, this is a nicomycosis that's not tinea ungium, it's uh, uh, nail candidiasis. It's actually quite uncommon. It, it does happen. There are hereditary states like mucocutaneous candidiasis that you see if you stay in an academic medical center for a lifetime, you'll see a you know, case every 10 years. It's just not the most common thing. Um, candidiasis also occurs as elsewhere. Um, you know, we, in body folds, we see plenty of candidiasis. It's warm and moist, use of uh, uh, diapers, uh, uh, lots of things predispose diabetes. Um, uh, and, you know, honestly, the, in the summer in the south, um, we see plenty of candidal overgrowth. It's very uncomfortable, very messy. Uh, it can occur between uh, the, the fingertips and toe tips. Uh, this goes by a terrific name. You know, you have to love dermatology because people have been looking at disease patterns since antiquity and giving them different names based upon different locations. Erosioblastomycetes interdigitale is the name for this phenomenon. Now, of course, you sound just wonderfully bright when you use that. You could just say, oh, that's candidiasis. Here's, you know, great drug. And the Canada organisms, well, they used to be a little more complicated, but they've gotten simpler. So some things get simpler in mycology, not many. So of course we know about Canada albicans, and, and Libby uh, was talking this morning about Canada tropicalis that used to be called, uh, well, no, that was always that, but then there was um, uh, Canada glabrata, which is another very important organism. It used to be called Toriolopsis glabrata. There's been a unification of Canada rather than a, a diaspora. It's really kind of nice. And then we've got a lot of weirdo fungi. Now, the way I think about these organisms is I know all of you keep perfectly clean kitchens, but if you leave a loaf of bread out for six weeks on the countertop, some nasty stuff will grow in it. Why? Because, you know, there are fungal organisms everywhere waiting to eat things up. And some of these fungal organisms are not your T. rubrums and Canada albicans, things like that. They're weirdo fungi. And some of those, these fungi in the environment um, can grow on us. So, and some of these challenge your ability to pronounce, like Neoscitalidium. Um, some of the uh, organisms we think about, Scopuloreopsis, uh, Hendersonula, and Aspergillus. Aspergillus can also be horrible invasive species, but can just live in the nails. Uh, you pray not to see folks with these things because these are exceptionally hard to treat. They can be treated, but they're not easy to treat. Dermatophytes are a lot easier. And then we have subcutaneous mycoses. I'm going to go through this pretty fast, um, but what's important to know is that there are thousands of fungal species out there, and they do all kinds of interesting things to us. So we've got sporotrichosis, chromoblastomycosis, pheohyphomycosis, mycotic mycetoma, subcutaneous zygomycosis, subcutaneous zygomycosis of the mucor type, rhinosporidiosis, and lobomycosis. Some of these exist only in places like India. Um, uh, but not sporotrichosis. Have any of you seen sporotrichosis? Yeah, yeah, in my area there's sporotrichosis. I don't, won't even say I see it every six months, but it's worth thinking about and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, putting this on your differential diagnosis. It's harder when you just see one spot, but if you see bunches of spots, 
it tells you immediately. People get these bumpy things. They can run in lines. They may not. Uh, so this is something we call sporotrichoid spread, which is not unique to sporotrichosis. Um, you know, the classic story, which I've never heard before, is that someone is uh, pricked by a rosebush uh, uh, and then they develop this infection. Um, yeah, it probably happens from trauma, but um, uh, this fungus is out there. Then there's chromoblastomycosis. Chromo means color. So these are oftentimes a funky color, and the, um, under the microscope, the organisms appear um, uh, like copper pennies. They're colored. Pheohyphomycosis, another variety. I've only seen this once in my career. Um, mycotic mycetoma, never seen. I'm sure some of you may not have seen this either since it's most common in, in South Asia. Um, rhinosporidiosis, never seen, but it's yet another fungus. Lobomycosis, another weirdo fungus found outside of the United States. See, I'm not spending a lot of time on these. Just showing you nice pictures. Um, we've got dimorphic systemic mycoses, which are important and we can see. Histoplasmosis. Growing up in the Midwest, I think I had histoplasmosis uh, only because a chest x-ray shows little dots, and that's probably histogranulomas uh, uh, that have calcified in my lungs. Oh, it's really common, but you know, weird things happen and some people get are predisposed to it, uh, particularly immunosuppressed. Coccidiodomycosis, blasto, and paracoxy, and we'll just talk about this. So this is a solitary histoplasmosis infection. Um, you know, histo is out there. Anytime I see folks with histo, I think immunosuppression, immunosuppression. Um, it may not be, but um, it's worth thinking about. Um, uh, when you have disseminated histoplasmosis, I always think about uh, immunosuppression, the HIV population, the lymphoma population, leukemia population. So, you know, when someone comes in with a weirdo rash uh, or weirdo bump, you're already going to think about doing a biopsy because that's how you're going to make the diagnosis and that's what's going to give you your answer. Um, blastomycosis, another fungus that, gosh, I see once every other year. Um, it's out there. It's uncommon. Um, you could just have one spot or more typically lots of spots. Um, coccidioidomycosis, another weirdo fungus. Um, and again, you don't have to be expert in these. Paracoxy is, I don't think, found in this country, but you know. One of the issues and one of the reasons I'm showing you these slides, um, from my little place in North Carolina to any major city in the world is 24 hours. To any village is about 72 hours. And you know what? People travel. People bring all kinds of weird stuff back you know, we've seen leprosy come in the door. We've seen uh, uh, leishmaniasis from, from uh, uh, Egypt come in. I mean, all kinds of stuff come in because, you know, people travel and then they forget that three weeks before they were, you know, sleeping under the sun in some village in, you know, Southeast Asia. You never know what's going to come in your way. And then there are opportunistic systemic mycoses. And, you know, this is just a convenient way of classifying things. And some of these are the same organisms, but very, very aggressive. So, you know, Canada can cause a little bit of a yeast infection in the vagina, but then it can be a systematized, 
horrible, life-threatening infection, typically in immunocompromised patients. We see this most commonly in cancer patients who are at their nadirs following uh, chemotherapy. Um, cryptococcosis, um, uh, cryptococcosis is a fungal organism that um, uh, we've, we actually see worst in HIV patients. Um, uh, aspergillosis, uncommon. Pseudoallergoriasis, uh, seen once in my career. The, the mucor mycoses or zygomycoses, I've seen a few times. It's the, probably one of the most frightening infections I could imagine. So um, this is disseminated candidiasis, where you see a broad number of tiny papules, sometimes with little pustules in the middle, this patient, by definition, is immunocompromised. Um, this is a life-threatening infection. So very, very important. Sometimes they have near no symptoms. Um, so uh, in the immunocompromised host, you know, the folks with their ANC is zero following chemotherapy. These are the folks you need to step on aggressively. Um, these are the folks where you say, well, it might be a drug rash, but let's take a biopsy to be sure, because if you do, you may have saved their life. Um, our hematology oncology folks insist we take biopsies, and most of the time, they're wrong. Most of the time, it's a stupid drug rash. It doesn't help the patient. Okay, we collect the fees for doing the biopsy. That's nice, but it doesn't help anybody. But every so often, it's a horrible, horrible disseminated infection, and we may have saved the person's life by jumping on treatment early. So this is a special population. This is cryptococcosis that's disseminated, the kind you see in people uh, in HIV disease that's very advanced. Um, uh, aspergillosis, mucormycosis. Now, the first mucormycosis patient I saw, I remember this, I was a third year medical student, uh, dermatology consult in patient in the hospital. A kiddo had mucormycosis of the sinuses, went in to see him, he was in the ICU, and you could look back and see the dura mater of the brain. There was nothing left, um, absolutely nothing left. He didn't survive. Nasty infection, nasty, nasty. Luckily, uncommon. So treatment of fungal infections, this is in the realm of the practical, okay? So if you see a patient with mucormycosis, you guys aren't gonna handle it, I'll tell you. I'm not gonna handle it. I'm gonna send this person to an ID doc. So uh, the fact is that we'll talk mostly about the common things, but it'll give you a flavor for uh, the overall pattern of treatment. Um, uh, so we've got different classes of drugs, and they're not all created equal. Um, and it's important to recognize for therapeutic reasons why you'd use one over another. So, we have the allylamines or the benzylamines, and um, these are drugs like naphtaphene, uh, terbenafine, and butanaphine, okay? Three examples in, in the allylamine group. And, and they work through the squalene epoxidase enzyme inhibition, which is way upstream. A lot of these, um, and I'll show you a little cartoon in a few seconds, uh, deal with the creation of the fungal cell wall. Um, fungi have cell walls, we don't. So, you know, anything that goes into the creation of a cell wall tends to be relatively specific to fungi because we don't have them. We don't need to make, you know, uh, things like squalene. Um, the imidazoles and the triazoles 
are a different drug, drug class. Anything that adds, ends in azole is either an imidazole or a triazole. And what these do is further downstream uh, uh, in the ergosterol pathway, they interfere in the development. In general, they're not as effective as the allyl and benzylamines, but they have efficacy. We've got the pyridones, which is its own weirdo drug class, and it has only one member, cyclopyrox. Um, we've got the polyenes, um, and the polyenes, we know in dermatology, uh, the one and only one uh, drug, which is nystatin, um, invented in New York State. That's what nystatin means. Um, but um, uh, uh, also amphoterable is in that group. Um, uh, well, that's a systemic drug, and I feel fortunate to no longer be in internal medicine and not prescribing that anymore. Um, and then we've got just other strange groupings of antifungal drugs that don't fit with anything else. We've got griseofulvin, we've got 5-flucytosine, and actually there are others as well. Um, now, just examples. So again, I was talking with you about allyl and benzylamines. So uh, butanafine, naftaphine, and terbenafine are examples of that. The imidazoles are most drugs that end in azole. Um, so clotrimazole, econazole, ketoconazole, similar. And what you need to know is that um, these are not particularly effective drugs. They have pretty broad spectrum, but they don't stick around very long on the skin. The skin doesn't like them at all, in fact. Um, the, in, the, in the European Union, to get a drug approved, uh, a topical drug, you have to have an active comparator. You can't do it against vehicle. And so what companies do is they choose the least effective active comparator because they want to win. So they always choose clotrimazole, which is the single least effective of the group. Um, that's very clever uh, strategy. Um, uh, and then we've got the triazoles. Now it turns out the triazoles are not the same as the imidazoles. They work through the same mechanism of action. They hit the same enzyme, but they're substantially more effective because they, uh, they achieve higher tissue concentrations and stick around longer than the imidazoles. So the triazoles actually, as a rule, are um, uh, are cytal for organisms. The benzyl and allyl amines are cytal. The uh, imidazoles are static. They inhibit the growth, but they don't kill the organism ex except at exceptionally high uh, levels, uh, whereas the triazoles do. And examples of triazoles, um, fluconazole, that's diflucan, itraconazole, uh, which I'll talk with you about in a moment, and then We've got a few others which are sort of interesting drugs. We've got posiconazole and voriconazole. Now, um, most of you probably don't prescribe those. They have the ability to go through the blood-brain barrier and treat not only infections internally, but they can hit the brain. Okay, anytime the fungus is affecting the brain, I'm not interested anymore. So you can be, but I'm not interesting. I'm interested. There is one topical triazole, probably the most effective of the azole-type groups, not probably as effective as the, as the allyl amines, but there's one topical triazole in the United States, which is terconazole. 
Now, terconazole is a very interesting drug, fabulously effective for all dermatophytes um, compared with all of the other things that end in azoles, but you guys don't prescribe it a lot, probably, I don't know. And the reason is that it was first developed as a skin drug, except it's a phototoxic agent. And so you put it on the skin, and then they get the phototoxic rash, and you know, it's an allergic rash, it's not allergic at all, it's phototoxic, and so, it was subsequently abandoned for topical use and put where the sun don't shine. It became the leading US prescribed topical therapy for vaginal candidiasis, terazole. So very clever twisting of the side effect profile into an advantage. Now, general rules that I think of. Number one, Nystatin only works for candida infections. I see folks who come in from their family doc all the time who have a florid dermatophytosis and they're not responding to Nystatin. Why? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So thank goodness they don't know it doesn't work. There are more patients for me. The imidazoles have pretty broad spectrum but they're not particularly potent agents. You know, they're like the master of, uh, uh, the jack of all trades, the master of none. The triazoles are substantially more effective, but we don't have any topical ones. We do have systemic ones, itraconazole and fluconazole. The allylamines are the most potent dermatophyte agents topically and orally, but they have very limited spectrum. They're not very good for yeast beasties. Um, they're not very good for anything else, but they're pretty darn good for dermatophytes. And then we've got griseofulvin. I came into dermatology at a time that was our only drug we had systemically. And um, well, for now, I think about only using oral drugs for tinea unguum. That may very well change. Now, here's my cartoon of the fungal cell wall and where things um, uh, go into place on this one. I'll, I'll indicate. So, um, you know, uh, uh, in the formation of the fungal cell wall, there are multiple steps and, you know, lots of things involved. What's nice about this, though, is that these have, the drugs have relatively limited toxicity for we humans, because uh, if they're reasonably specific, um, there's not a lot of interaction. Uh, and then we've got concepts of fungicidal versus fungistatic. Um, static drugs inhibit. Um, cytal drugs kill. The allylamines and triazoles are uh, cytal as a rule, whereas the, um, the uh, imidazoles and other drugs, you know, weirdo drugs, are static. Um, and one of the things we know about the um, allylamines, this is terbenafine for example, is that these are highly keratinophilic. They love the keratin, and they accumulate in the keratin. When I started in dermatology, the only systemic drug we had for, uh, for um, fungal infections was griseofulvin. And, you know, we would put people through a 12 to 24-month course of uh, griseofulvin, and it had less than a 50% cure rate. That's for 12 to 24 months of continuous treatment. But for those of you who've prescribed oral terbenafin, you know, you prescribe it for, you know, three, four months, and it accumulates in the tissues and sticks around. That's a uh, characteristic of the allylamines. It's highly um, keratinophilic. As a topical drug, this is one for a uh, study of naphtaphene, that's naphtin, and 
if you put radio-labeled naphtaphene as a single radio-labeled dose on the forearm, um, you can demonstrate the drug still there in cytal levels for dermatophytes five to 10 days after the dose. The importance of this is that our patients don't treat, you know, every day the surface of their skin. Uh, you know, you tell them, oh yeah, this drug is indicated twice a day for the next six months. Oh yeah, right. Uh, you know, as soon as the itching is gone, they're, they're done. So, um, you know, drugs with high keratin affinity like naphtaphene, like terbenafine, are really particularly useful because our patients are not going to treat for four weeks uh, almost all the uh, topical drugs for uh, tinea pedis, for instance, are indicated for four weeks of twice daily use. And you know, um, I'm one with tinea pedis, and I treat for a few days and I'm done. Uh, I know my patients are different than me, they're much better than I am, but I treat till my symptoms are gone. Um, the most recently approved drug uh, in the uh, fungal category is uh, uh, naphtaphene 2% cream, and this was approved on the basis of two weeks treatment, um, uh, two weeks treatment of feet, two weeks treatment of, uh, of groin, and um, uh, cure rates are pretty decent. These are mycologic cure rates. Two weeks treatment, um, uh, you stop because it accumulates in the skin, and already at week six, you've got 67% uh, mycologic cure rate, uh, which is the single most important uh, characteristic of an anti-infective is do you kill the organism, um, which, is, which is not bad. This drug actually only got approved for interdigital uh, tinea pedis, even though the trial was for both moccasin and interdigital, because um, there were not enough patients recruited that had moccasin tinea pedis. Wait till the data come out for the gel. The naphtaphene 2% gel, um, it turns out, has a pretty spectacular cure rate of moccasin tinea pedis, that is the whole foot tinea pedis, uh, and so it's very likely to get approval, but we'll have to see with what the FDA does. Um, uh, so this is the latest of the drugs approved, the naphtaphene 2% cream. Again, it's an allyl amine and it has that keratinophilic effect. Now, is griseofulvin still useful? It depends on who you ask. Um, so um, uh, uh, there's been a lot of attention to this and when I came into dermatology, again, this was the only oral antifungal we had, but now we've got choices. Um, it turns out it really depends on the organism. And in a meta-analysis that was published last year, um, overall, terbenafine was more effective than griseofulvin for all comers. But it's a little more complicated than that. It depends on the organism. So it turns out T-tonsorans, trichophidin tonsorans, is much more effectively killed with terbenafine than griseofulvin. But if it's a microsporum species, probably griseofulvin is better. So for the most common organisms in the United States, terbenafine is more effective than griseofulvin. There was just an article published last month, I think it was out of Egypt, in which folks were randomized to uh, uh, receive either terbenafine or fluconazole or griseofulvin, and it turns out the cure rates were about the same across the whole spectrum. 
However, the problem with that study is that the biology of infections in, I think it was, again, Egypt was very different. They have a different species than uh, you see in this country. And I don't typically treat people in Egypt very often. So um, uh, we have to treat our local population. Back to uh, terbenafine oral, um, very good uh, anti-dermatophyte drug. This would not be my go-to drug for yeast infections because it has a very narrow spectrum. Um, uh, and there are some drug interactions. I worry the most about Coumadin. Uh, Coumadin uh, or Warfarin does have a significant drug interaction with this one. And, you know, about 10% of my patients I want to put on this drug are on Warfarin. You need to think about those things. Um, and there's a world of drugs beyond oral terbenafine. Um, so if we think about it, itraconazole is what I think of as the jack of all trades, the master of none. It's not the go-to dermatophyte drug. However, it hits more fungal species than just about anything else you can possibly imagine. It's, it's at least second-line treatment for everything. Um, and there are fungi that do not respond to terbenafine. Have, has anyone in this room ever seen uh, a necomycosis that did not respond to three months of terbenafine? I have. I have. And I'm convinced the people actually took it. Okay, so the other issue is they didn't take the drug. But, but yeah, so we've got lots of species out there of fungi that don't respond so well to terbenafine. Uh, and so we've got a nice other drug, itraconazole, and it has a broader spectrum even than fluconazole, um, but not quite as broad as posiconazole or voriconazole. But again, those are drugs that have great CNS penetration, drugs I don't want to even think about. Um, so these hit lots and lots of organisms and is a great second-line drug for many, many things. Um, it also has some drug interactions. Nice, um, you know, uh, uh, Libby this morning, Libby Edwards, who lives in my area, was talking that she doesn't have a computerized medical record. I love our computerized medical record. You do the drug interaction thing with one click. That keeps me from doing horrible things to my patients. Um, so, I, you know, I don't object. I, I'm thrilled to have the EMR. Um, and some of these drugs are phototoxic. Flucytosine, okay, I've never prescribed that, hope never to. Griseofulvin is phototoxic. I try not to prescribe that anyway. Turconazole, that's, you know, the vaginal yeast thing, although it's really good for the skin, but you don't want to prescribe it because they'll blow up with a phototoxic reaction. And voriconazole, but by the time people are on voriconazole for their, you know, crypto, candid, you know, crypto stuff in the brain, you don't want to be part of that. Now, does topical treatment work for a nicomycosis or tinea unguum? Good question. Now, thus far in my career, I've never prescribed a topical drug for uh, tinea unguum. Why? Because, well, there is one approved, Penlac. And if you look at the uh, data that got it approved, um, basically the data clearly show that if you apply it every day for 48 weeks, you get about a 2% cure rate. That's, that's what the data show um, uh, if you look not just at the um, end of treatment, but 12 weeks after the end of treatment, about 98% failure rate, 2% cure rate. And you know, people have come in and asked for it by name, and I said, 
I'm happy to prescribe it. I think it's absolutely um, uh, side effect free. Oh, maybe a little itch, but it's, it's fine. But it offers a 2% cure rate. Funny, not one person has wanted a prescription for it after they discover the real cure rate. Um, I'm not saying it can't work, it can. Um, and cyclopyrox, which is the drug, is a cytal drug. I mean, it's a good drug, but it probably just doesn't penetrate. There is a report out there um, uh, uh, on a new triazole, and triazoles are a good class of drugs, um, uh, and this new triazole is called aphenoconazole. Um, Valiant's developing this, and supposedly, according to the press release, great results. No numbers. No numbers. I got to see the numbers, you know? If you want me to try to sell this to my patients, you got to beat 2%. You just have to. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to prescribe drugs with a 2% cure rate, that's great. Um, uh, but, you know, I want a little bit better than that. I suspect 2% is about what you get with Vicks VapoRub. <laughs> and what about natural cures? Um, so, okay, so. We got melaleuca oil. Everybody loves melaleuca oil unless you develop an allergic contact dermatitis to it, and that's been reported, and I've seen it the past week. Okay, but um, there was a comparator with tinea pedis, and um, it was less effective than the, the, than the comparator. So it did something, but not much. Um, uh, uh, on on anicomycosis, actually, it was just as effective as clotrimazole, which is the absolute weakest and least effective of all of the imidazoles. So it's equal to the least effective known topical azole drug. Um, well, some people advocate vinegar soaks. I, mean, I don't know. Does it do anything? Who knows? What about physical modalities? Any of you shooting lasers into people's nails to cure their anicomycosis? Yeah, a couple people, yeah. So, now, the way these products are approved, these devices are approved, is on the basis of improving the appearance of the nail, of not curing the fungus. Um, there's essentially no data on uh, curing the fungus, just on improving the surface, the, the appearance of the surface of the nail. Uh, and I don't doubt in some people it might improve. I found, because I look very, very thoroughly through uh, the literature, through the web, I count on Dr. Google to show me a lot, I found one study, this is you know typical uh, study for improving the appearance, not clearing the fungus. I found one study that looked at um, a lasing device that showed some people got mycologic cure. And it actually makes sense. You blast some high energy light into the nail, wouldn't you believe it nukes apart some of these fungal organisms? It makes some sense. There's just not a lot of uh, data on it. I think the laser is very, very safe. I'm not trying to sell it. I don't do it myself. Uh, it's very safe, probably compared with taking systemic drugs. And the nice thing is, is that it's billable in cash. Uh, you know, it's not subject to uh, insurance issues because, well, they just generally don't pay. And speaking of fungal infections, particularly the dermatophytes, um, these tend to be recurrent. So um, uh, when you treat someone for their anicomycosis, their tinea unguum, um, you know, it's important to establish in the beginning that sooner or later their disease is coming back because, in fact, 
Their fungal infection is their own fault. Wise people choose their parents carefully. Wise people choose parents that don't have skin fungal infections and are resistant to such fungal infections. By contrast, unwise people, like yours truly, I've got a necomycosis right now, I chose a dad that has a nail fungal infection. Had I been wiser about my choice of a sperm donor, it could have altered the perception of reality. Um, so um, we get exposed to these organisms all the time. Uh, it's thought, for instance, with Trichophytum rubrum, the most common dermatophyte in the United States, that I found one reference uh, that it lives off the scale, uh, on the scale, that's dust, um, uh, uh, for up to a calendar year um, after it's off the body. Um, I can't find a reference for this, but I remember listening to a lecture from 20 years ago where someone said that T. rubrum in spore form can live between 10 and 80 years off a human body in the environment. And so what that ultimately means is that if you ever walk across your bathroom floor, if you ever put on a pair of shoes that's been put on in the past 80 years, if you ever walk across a hotel room such as the one that I'm staying in right now, there is no question that there are fungal organisms there. But susceptible individuals um, provide a great environment for the growth. Non-susceptible individuals don't. Women, for some reason, being more intelligent than we guys, tend to be more resistant to getting fungal infections. Not to say that they can't, but they're more resistant. Um, uh, but interestingly, psychologically, I have much harder time with women because, you know, guys say, oh, yeah, I got this in the locker room playing football as normal, uh, you know. Whereas women, if you, if you actually look between their toes and part of a good uh, uh, skin cancer examination includes looking between toes, in my opinion, um, quite honestly, if you really look, you know, you'll find in older women a fair amount of tinea pieces. Nearly every person is insulted. They tell me that I'm insulting their cleanliness. This has nothing to do with that. This has to do with sleeping with an old geezer who's had fungus on their feet for the past 50 years, and some of it is, you know, passed over. So this is normal. And if you get rid of a fungus infection, it's almost certainly going to come back um, if it's one of the common types like tinea pedis uh, or tinea uh, unguum. Maybe not, you know, if you get, uh, you know, doggy ringworm, if you get it from your brand new puppy and you get your puppy cured, it's not going to come back. Those are different organisms like M. canis, highly inflammatory species. Now, um, an excellent resource. There's so many things online to read about fungi, um, whole courses you can get. Um, this is a ringworm modulator from Way Huge Electronics. Now, I hope to impress upon you that I'm a fun guy, but I'm talking about fungi. So fungus is fun to treat. I treat to win. Um, uh, I don't um, tell people, for instance, with, uh, with uh, uh, fungal infections of the nail that I will cure them for life. It's good to know, it's good to teach them from the beginning that sooner or later it will come back. That way you look like a smart provider. You're predicting the future and showing them that it's their fault. 
Now, by contrast, if you say, oh, we're going to treat you and cure you for life, that's when folks start getting disappointed in your diagnostic and treatment abilities, when it's the patient's fault, not yours. So that's my brief introduction to fungus. I, I think it's kind of fun. Um, what's a challenge, one organism has, in my 25 years in dermatology, has changed names four times. Four name changes to one organism in 25 years. When's the next name change going to happen? Undoubtedly, it's got to be in the next five years. It's due. So uh, fungus stuff is evolving constantly over time. Whatever you hear today will change, and we'll have new drugs. It's great that, um, that new topical agents, new systemic agents are being developed all the time. Um, will they offer treatment advantages? Maybe in terms of compliance, convenience, safety. Um, keep, keep an open mind. Just because you've done it such and such a way for the past five years doesn't mean that's the right way to do it when we have new and different modalities to treat. I thank you much. Hello. Yeah. What are your thoughts of using uh, Penlac with a oral antifungal for maintenance? Oh, okay. So. So, you know, is there value of using Penlac, which is Cyclopyrox nail lacquer, which again has a 2% cure rate, as some kind of a maintenance treatment? Well, you know, it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. Um, now, is there something special to Cyclopyrox? Only that it is a cytal drug, yes. Um, that makes sense. But there are other cytal drugs as well. The other cytal drugs include naftaphine, terbenafine, and butanaphine. So uh, if you look at, in terms of the per gram cost, um, uh, uh, Penlac is the most expensive per gram of the cytal drugs. So you might think about that. You might think about also cost efficacy in terms of what gets you to the destination better. But I like the idea of hitting it from the outside and hitting it from the inside at the same time. There's not a lot of evidence based supporting it, but it makes sense. Yes? Over the years, I've read a lot about a lot of different ways to treat onychomycosis with the oral medicines, you know, pulsing and do it for three months or four months or whatever. Um, so my question is, do you have a regimen that you use? And also, do you check liver functions before, after, during treatment with those medicines? Sure, sure. Well, I'll tell you what I do. But um, so uh, that's not to say it's the truth, because I don't, the truth is truly elusive. Um, you know, it's only pretty much in the United States that people worry about these antifungal uh, treatments and liver toxicity. However. Serious liver toxicity has been reported with all of the antifungal drugs. There's no question about that. Uh, and that includes terbenafine, it includes um, itraconazole, fluconazole. Serious liver toxicity has been reported. I typically don't check um, liver functions at all unless someone tells me that you know they have serious liver damage. Well, then I'm not interested anyway in treating them. So uh, you know if they drink a gallon a day of vodka, well you know maybe another time. Let's work on the surface. So um, typically when I'm using terbenafine, I just go for three months straight and you know stop. 
Um, if I'm using itraconazole, I typically do the same thing, 200 milligrams for three months. Because that's more expensive, it's for me a second-line drug, but it hits a lot more organisms, uh, and I tend to use it in the folks that fail. For instance, um, if you believe the literature, and not everybody does, the cure rate's only 60 or 70% with terbenafin. It's probably higher in folks who are compliant and who are younger. It's probably lower in folks who are diabetic, have poor circulation, poor perfusion. Uh, but, you know, those are the people at highest risk. So um, uh, I worry more about the drug interaction issue, to tell you the truth, um, because, um, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of people who request oral antifungal treatment that are on uh, warfarin, which is that's a, a pretty significant drug interaction. I don't think there's a right approach. When you use pulse treatment, it seems to be a bit less effective. People argue it's more convenient. Maybe it is. I don't know how much easier it is to, you know, do it once a week as opposed to, you know, every day. It's unclear. And I'm sorry, one quick more question. Yeah. Do you routinely culture or do you just treat empirically if it doesn't get better then give okay. them metriconazole? So um, uh, even though I'm the head of our CLIA certified uh, dermatology laboratory, uh, I don't actually culture much at all. Um, only, I only culture in a situation where I'm really uncertain about what's going on. Is this psoriasis? Is this lichen planus? Is this, you know, some other thing? Uh, are there major issues, major medical issues, which would really dissuade me from treating unless it was positively a fungus? That's when I culture. We use DTM. You know, it's red or not red, fuzzy, wuzzy or not. Uh, it's really easy to do. Um, but... Uh, 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 the old days of speciation, where we used to, you know, worry, is it T. rubrum, T. mentag, T. varicosum, you know, M. autoweeni? <laughs> it's gone. Uh, it's, just, it's just gone. Um, and honestly, it didn't even matter then. <laughs> but if you want to culture them all and speciate, it sounds fine. Thank you. Yes. For individuals that are treating with topical antifungals, and I try to give them something to do in the environment. As you mentioned, as we walk across the bathroom floor or whatever, we're going to get re-exposed, but is there any utility to giving them something to do to treat their environment, their shoes, their shower? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I didn't go into that, but it's one of my favorite topics, that um, trying to decrease the load in the environment probably has benefit. There's no evidence base supporting it, but it probably does. So, for instance, there are multiple devices if you go online, it's amazing what Dr. Google show, and there are these ultraviolet light units to shove into shoes that nuke the organisms. Um, but you know, just as effective, um, just a, a pure off-the-wall anecdote, my, one of my silly daughters, um, Sarah, has left her very expensive softball glove out in the rain in North Carolina. It's amazing how effective Lysol spray is. It's just unbelievable. And now there are special proprietary antifungal sprays you can get, but quite honestly, a little spritz once or twice a week of Lysol into a pair of shoes or whatever kind of similar uh, biocidal product you want to talk about kills a lot. Um, you can kill a lot in, a, in many different settings. Um, uh, and just one of my favorite modalities of treatment, um, you know, the young dermatologist uses 20 treatments for every disease. 
the old dermatologist uses one treatment for 20 diseases. So, so um, I've come to enjoy recommending dilute bleach baths for everything. So, you know, anything that lives through sodium hypochlorite deserves to live. And, and, and a half a cup of bleach in a nice comfortable bath, soaking for 10 or 15 minutes, rinse it off your body before you get out because otherwise you'll ruin everything. Um, you know, it's not just good for atopic dermatitis, but it's great for folliculitis and furunculosis and fungus and widespread fungus infections. Um, you know, I think that coating the body in a little bit of dilute sodium hypochlorite is very helpful, making sure that, yes, bathroom floors are clean. Um, uh, I, had, I had tinea pedis as a kiddo, um, but um, when I injured myself a few years ago and started going to our uh, local YMCA and walking through the, you know, the locker room with all these naked men, I picked up unbelievable case of tinea pedis. Um, so, you know, you want to go to the YMCA, it's a good thing, I encourage it, but, you know, not so good for the feet. Um, next. What's your opinion about using the thymol and isopropanol alcohol uh, topically? So, you know, um, I, I trained in an era where um, it, it was a different uh, concoction because, uh, uh, probably a more effective concoction, which was thymol in chloroform. Does anyone remember thymol in chloroform, or am I unique? And, and thymol and chloroform is, well, it's a carcinogen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you can't worry about those things. <laughs> but uh, uh, so after, after pharmacists wouldn't mix it up in chloroform anymore, we switched to ethanol. And you know, I don't know, it probably does something. Uh, you know, thymol is one of the active ingredients in Listerine. I mean, it's an incredibly weak biocide, but you know, it's a special concoction. People love to do special things. I don't think there's any great efficacy, but it keeps people busy. I was taught that was the treatment of choice for, um, uh, for you know, people with anicholysis uh, to help retard fungal infections. I, I'm not sure it does anything at all. Um, it's a lot cheaper to buy a great big bottle of Listerine and have people soak it in that, and you kind of get the same stuff, and alcohol, and a little thymol. Listerine has a couple other active ingredients, too, which are probably worthless. So, um, uh, but yeah, chloroform, so good stuff. Next slide. Seems like everybody these days is on a statin. Uh, do you have people take a break in their statin therapy when you're putting them on oral antifungals, or how do you manage well, that? Well, so yeah, you know, statins are um, almost in the water supply, uh, whether it's, you know, simvastatin, you know, Crest, or the, I mean, there's so many statins. And, you know, as uh, uh, someone who treats a number of folks who are older, these are not rare drugs. In fact, a number of my patients that I see say, I know my statin drug is hard on my liver. I don't want to take anything that could be hard on my liver, too. Hey, I, I'm not disagreeing with you, you know. Um, uh, I would not stop a statin drug, and I'll tell you why. It would just be plain guilt on my part. You know, it's high-risk individuals generally that are on statin drugs, people at increased risk for myocardial infarction, cerebrovascular accidents and such. And it's really a long-term risk, not a short-term risk thing. But you know, wouldn't I feel bad if they had a stroke when I stopped it to treat their fungus? You know, I would feel bad about that, so I don't do it. If someone's worried enough about their statin drugs, generally in my experience, 
they won't use a systemic treatment anyway. Um, a lot of people, you know, they're not worried at all about their statin drugs. Yeah, 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 I get it. I get it checked all the time. It's no problem, doc. Let's, let's just get rid of the nail fungus. So I don't, I don't worry too much about it. Next. I'm curious if you give a uh, exact regimen or, or uh, idea for a regimen for oral diflucan uh, for candidal anicomycosis. Okay. And um, so no, nobody knows what the regimen is. So, so the, the, the question is, you know, what, uh, what oral regimen? So we've got two in dermatology anyway. Uh, we're going to exclude voriconazole and posiconazole, but we've got two triazole drugs, fluconazole and itraconazole, both of which are very good for candidiasis. Um, but what's the right regimen? I haven't a clue. Um, nobody knows. It's certainly been reported that folks uh, who go on those drugs uh, for a few months do great. Um, some people use pulse treatment. Uh, there's no evidence base supporting it. Um, uh, so there's no right or wrong approach. Actually, uh, candidal fungal infections of nails are relatively uncommon. They, they do happen, though. They're, they're relatively uncommon. But um, you're out there on your own. Neither one is approved for candidal fungal infections of the nails, and there is no approved regimen. So, I mean, it's a great question. I don't know. I'd probably treat for three months. Thank you. And then uh, lastly, I've always been a little not really sure what to do with uh, oral terbenafine in um, the pediatric population. Okay, so oral terbenafine in the pediatric population, I've often found to be incredibly easy. So I, you know, I don't pay any attention to Harriet Lane books, you know, I go simple. So, okay, so don't pay any attention to what I'm going to say. So I've seen a lot of adult women that are, you know, around 45 kilos, you know, 100 pounds, and so generally what I do in dosing is half of that, I give half an adult dose, and a quarter of that, I give a quarter of an adult dose, and then I start looking things up. When kids are, you know, 15 kilos, you know, I'm, I'm looking up doses. Uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not flying off the cuff. But, you know, in a kiddo that's somewhere in the 50-pound vicinity, I'd give half an adult dose, in, in a, you know, uh, uh, but if they're tiny, um, I start looking up doses. But typically, you know, fungal infections, say, of the scalp, don't start occur occurring until kids are, you know, five years old, eight years old. They're rambunctious and they're playing with their friends in school and they give each other tinea capitis. So it's actually pretty simple. And you can either use uh, the tablets and have folks cut them up, and that works fine. Or alternatively, it comes in little granules that um, are a little bit easier to dose. But either way, it works fine. It's, it's, it's actually not difficult at all. Yes? Um, I was trained that uh, intradigital maceration is always a combination of bacteria and fungus, and you have to treat both. Do you have to do that every time, or can you just give them an afungal and say, well, we'll clear that up, and the bacteria will go along with it? Sure. It, you know, in one of my... Uh, uh, roles. Um, I, I, you know, I work with uh, uh, a great little company called MERS Pharmaceuticals, and they have a, a substantial sales in the podiatry world. And, I, and I've learned from our friends, the podiatrists, they, they do a lot of the same things, and they do a lot of different things than we do in dermatology. Um, but they call that intertrigo. Um, that infection that occurs between the web spaces, they call intertrigo. And 
Um, the assumption is, in that world is that it's a mixed infection, mixed bacterial, mixed fungal infection, and it probably is. Um, it probably is. So, so one thing worth thinking about um, are, you know, methods to dry the skin to, to get rid of that maceration, which is very, very important. The, but the other component is thinking very broad spectrum. Um, that's where I actually do want to use an azole antifungal drug because the azoles hit the bacteria too. Um, the allyl amines, although they're much more effective for the pure dermatophytes, are not as effective for bacteria. So good examples are Econazole, which has very, very good uh, gram-positive and some gram-negative coverage, as well as Sulconazole, um, another one with very broad spectrum activity, not just for um, the dermatophytes, but yeasts and, and bacteria too. That's where I wouldn't use an allyl allylamine. You want to hit it. Other approaches are, you know, good old-fashioned soaks in, uh, in vinegar or dilute bleach bath soaks. Again, you know, back to the simple stuff. Um, you know, I learned about soaks in burrow solution. I stopped recommending it because I became convinced not a soul I ever recommended it to actually did it. Uh, but you can still buy burrow solution if you look hard in your local full-service uh, pharmacy. So yeah, it needs to be dried out, but then thinking very broadly about mixed infection. Great, thanks.